You're now listening to the No GPS Podcast with host Mez and Aaron. Remember to share, like, subscribe, and follow. Got a show idea, complaint, interesting take, or just want to say what's up? You can reach us at nogpspodcast.gmail.com. Enjoy the show. What's up? We're back again for episode 11, I believe. It might be 12. Mez, it's starting to get up there. I'm here with my co-host, Mez. My name is Aaron, and we're doing something a bit different today. Mez, would you like to introduce the podcast for us? Yeah, sure. What's up? Uh, Today, we got a book. We're going to slowly read through and uh, try and cover over the next uh, two or three episodes. And... um, the book is by uh, Daniel McNeil, with whom I uh, who used to be my instructor at university. Uh, book's called "Thinking While Black: Translating the Politics and Popular Culture of a Rebel Generation." It just came out late last year. Uh, it's uh, it's a book that uh, McNeil has been writing for quite a while, and I was uh, privileged enough to be um, to, to read you know bits and pieces there as he was uh um you know releasing some of them over as articles here and there and uh uh so to see the final product was pretty dope and uh if he is listening at some point (laughs) uh he did send me some stuff to to go over years ago when i was a little bit uh, away from from uh you know keeping up with uh, the latest uh readings i guess and writings so I didn't get back to it, but um, to see the final product come out is pretty dope. And um, you, Aaron, yourself um, would know that over the last 10 years or so, a lot of the uh, contents of this book we have discussed in our own <laughs> yeah. free time, right. uh, especially because the book covers uh, two prominent uh, writers, I, I would say. One maybe more than the other, but then again, it depends on their, in their respective scenes. But um, it's about Paul Gilroy and Armand White. Armand White, me and you have spoken about for many, many years. Uh, Paul Gilroy, uh, not maybe that much, because I always uh, had my issues with him. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, it's to finally see a book come out that uh, has these two very, very different, I guess, generational cohorts, uh, bringing them into conversation and... Uh, thinking through uh, a generation of uh, you know what daniel mcneil calls uh, a rebel generation rebel, rebel generation was soul i guess um it's pretty interesting i mean we've uh, we've me and you have spoken about how it's always uh cool to bring two things that have nothing to do with each other in, in into contact um because you know there's once you break things down and deconstruct like the language of things, all of a sudden things that didn't make, didn't seem so connected seem uh, to actually do have something uh, in common. So mm-hmm. uh, that's uh, what we're going to do today. We're going to cover the first couple of chapters and then uh, go from there. Right, right, right. So we're, we're covering the intro and the first two chapters, I believe, of the book going up to page 30... It's, uh, 43, yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, so these, these are two thinkers 
who normally wouldn't be put together. But I think that that's exactly the genius of Daniel McNeil, in a sense, kind of learning from both Armand and Gilroy, who like to take things out of their context and show the the desperate connections. But the connections, nevertheless, between those two thinkers, those, those two ideas, those two products, cultural products. And so I, I thought that was pretty genius of Daniel McNeil to do that, to bring these two thinkers, uh, one from, of course, England, uh, Paul Gilroy, and then the other, Armin White from America. I was introduced to all of these thinkers, uh, including Daniel McNeil, uh, by you. And obviously, we, we, we delved deeper into Armin White than Gilroy. But reading some stuff over the years, um, uh, but not, not that intensively has been you know a very enriching experience just reading this book now and and I think McNeil really has a handle on these two thinkers and what they mean to you know uh, the community of black intellectuals that both of these seemingly are as different as they are they're both outsiders they're both outliers and they love to flout convention and so they have that as Daniel McNeil would say I do it for yourself punk ethos so that, that those are the points of connectivity between them and they're great disruptors. And so uh, I'm excited to read the book. I'm excited to talk about this. And for sure, it seems like very fitting for these times because we're putting two thinkers together who uh, from the um, looking at it from the outset would have great disagreements. But that's all the more reason why you would put these two together to have a discussion and to show a level of democratic democratic sensibility and a level of political and cultural maturity and to get out of the echo chambers and to find new ideas uh, and new thoughts and the, the, those strands in those conversations that are sometimes hard to have. And so uh, another thing I want you to talk about this too, Mez, is that I think Daniel McNeil understands Canada better than Canadians. Yeah, I was going to add that. <laughs> yeah, so we could get into that. Just the how the how Canadian media and academic institutions uh, patronize uh, the general public, the informed general public. And so the kinds of conversations that are licensed to happen in public spheres or within the pages, within editorial pages. I thought that that was salient. I feel like there is. There is this issue of uh, dumbing things down or not thinking that the public itself has anything of merit to really contribute. So there's no real call and response relationship. It's just uh, you're handed down these edicts from uh, the, 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 the ivory towers and, and the media institutions. So I thought I thought that that was salient, uh, very searing and poignant the way that he put it. So, yeah, that was going to that's going to be my other point in the introduction is that. It's uh, probably important to note that both listeners, readers, and uh, the writer himself, um, McNeil, would probably appreciate that this podcast is an is uh, you know on either side of the Atlantic, one in Canada, uh, one host in Canada, and the other in London, talking about the dynamic of the Black Atlantic uh, itself. So um, that's probably uh, that's probably also relevant. Um, the only other thing I would say as well is. And Daniel would teach us back in the day, it's close reading. And I don't know if I still do that. <laughs> it's been a long time. But uh, a, a, a phrasing that he would always uh, bring up uh, is discordant affinities. 
and i think that's kind mm. of the in a nutshell what the this book is kind of um you know being read through is there's uh, affinities but however discordant they might be right and right. uh that's kind of also the the, the hopeful hopefulness of um cross cultural uh discourse uh that doesn't succumb to difference but uh seeks to meet it you know reach out so um yeah i mean that's uh you want to jump into it yeah let's jump into it let's jump right. all the uh, way in so just generally as uh, as an introduction when i first walked into uh daniel's class uh it was media and cultural studies this was this was 2009 and first time i came across people like paul gilroy and stuart hall i was i was literally just i was less wait maybe a year into my you know uh time living here in england Mm-hmm. and all these people were really far away from me <laughs> you know like i couldn't understand uh who they were what their context was also the context being in, the, in you know independent critical study and at the university level which was also new to me even though i went to university in asmara years before that was separate and my ideas of blackness were all imported even though i wasn't consciously i wasn't conscious of it um so the idea of uh of a of a dynamic kind of network of blackness uh uh or meanings and signifiers of blackness that existed within the atlantic up and down i was i i wasn't ready for that idea so <laughs> i remember just not just me the whole class kind of thinking you know being introduced to paul gilroy and thinking uh why why this guy <laughs> you know <laughs> what what makes this guy so special he seems pretty boring um Now, now you know. Fast forward, I kind of understand a lot of it, uh, the the context a little bit more, and um, um, I've made my own mind up, of course, about Paul Gilroy, um, what I get out of him and what I can't, what I know I can't get out of him. I've met a lot of, you know, Black British folks in these uh, intervening 15 years, and uh, what they think of him, whether they knew of him or not. A lot of the history that Daniel goes over in the uh, in the black and british chapter that basically goes over um, paul gilroy's you know life from you know b- being born in in the 50s and growing up in the enoch powell kind of years um the days of you know soul punk and rock and roll uh, festivals the days of you know the first black football player to play for such and such professional team and um that whole kind of uh history i kind of got gotten to understand a little bit more from actual people you know speaking to them been there or who who um who had parents who, who went through the you know through those generations and um uh what i've always I, mean, i guess i can say about paul gilroy is he always struck me as someone who had nothing politically to say to me but whose uh critiques um about culture about the meaning of uh, certain words certain terms at the individual level always made me have to take pause and then kind of rethink things um that's why my favorite part of this uh chapter is really the end part the part that um kind of singles um uh, that talks about the uh 
the days of him being kind of singled out as a heretic by different people mind you he obviously wrote to a you know to the left of people like Raymond Williams and E.P. Thompson and uh, critiqued them in you know in familiar ways the way we do now and how the left the, the white left actually has a lot of things in common with the very white right that it you know purports to be uh, resisting or battling against whereas there were people to the left of Paul Gilroy uh, whether Asian black or just politically black. Who reminded him of his uh, shortcomings when uh, when he seemed to drift a little bit away from the people and fall I uh, think a little bit too deep into his own uh, what, what should I call it uh, daydreams <laughs> yeah I want to start with this bit here on page 16 okay um, yeah so he, he talks about how he as a teenager quickly kind of breaks up from uh, from his relationship his family's relationship with Christianity and he would continue to relish uh, quote unquote ideal communicative communicative moments between performer and crowd which he believed surpassed anything the structures of the family can provide and when he started going out to experience live music in London in the late 60s and early 70s so this is um, almost a uh, spoke about this before offline with you that this first generation of a certain kind of middle class of non-white folks immigrants or otherwise and I, and I think Danny McNeil is very careful when he writes immigrant or first or second generation immigrant it's always quotations or um, he doesn't just throw those terms out but there's this first generation of a middle class that had time or of moments in their lives to actually enjoy things to be around to 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 take in things you know what was uh, what was going on around them um as opposed to maybe previous generations where um this black middle class was always um you know maybe held back a little bit from gaining that kind of leisure time um so that's i, I think what haunts my relationship to paul gilroy for the rest of for the rest of the my time here even because there seems to be someone who has his eyes in the in the clouds even though he has a lot of pertinent things to say yeah i i also do think that his approach is deliberately it's smart in the sense that he understood you needed more than just the dialectics of like analyzing material reality you need more than that analysis, that dialectical analysis, to reach and touch the working class, or the lower, the lower middle uh, class, right? And so that's why he taps into the rich cultural productions of the Black Atlantic, right? I think that they say, I think, I think it's said in the book that you know the great, the two great inventions, artistic inventions, cultural inventions of the 20th century. Is film, of which Armin White is a film critic, and black music, of which both Gilroy and Armin White are are very, very, very much involved in critique and um, just being inconsensed in that world. So I, I understand why it's they're competing, right, with the right. So how do how do we win the hearts and minds? And I think what they find out later, or the as McNeil shows. 
the issue with the Gilroy's uh, approach coming from the the staunch Marxists is that you know people are not really jumping on our side. They 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 they're both for the National Front, you know, a racist right wing organization, and with us, uh, you know, socialists and Marxists on this side. So this is this has no real material or real uh, symbolic weight. And so, yeah, obviously that that was the critique level that Gilroy by so many people. I mean, he had issues with he was a man on an island by himself. Right. It's the Afrocentrics were coming after him on his analysis of race and his critique on, you know, these these black revivalist sensibilities coming from, you know, the Nation of Islam, from the, from the Rastafari movement. And so, he, you know, he was embattled against them. Because he was very outspoken, and then the Marxists are coming at him, and then of course the right wing, right? So he he's kind of like Armand in the sense that they don't really have any friends, uh, and they they've been they they they're they're outsiders in the black public intellectual realm, uh, which is which is fascinatingly interesting. I think also too for Gilroy, what's an interesting point of difference between him and Armand White is that Armand, of course, believes that. You know, black consciousness involves God and the family, and of course, Gilroy is 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 not religious. He's not Christian, as Armin White is, and he believes that freedom or liberation can only happen in the public sphere. So that's where this kind of difference is. But I can understand this all these this rich cultural production coming out in the sixties and seventies when you know Gilroy started to go out to concerts, go out to different events. He goes to see Bob Marley. He goes to see Curtis Mayfield. And, you know, that song Darker Than Blue really becomes an anthem for him uh, and an appeal to humanism. Right. And I think that's also the connection between Armand and Gilroy. Right. Uh, you could talk about this probably in uh, in more depth and detail, Mez, but they, they both see themselves as humanists. And that that's what kind of makes them kind of old, old symbols of of how we it's almost kind of naive to a lot of people now who are really disaffected with all that stuff and disenchanted with all of that humanist talk and of course we've had different interventions theoretical interventions in the last 10 to 20 years that have really questioned humanism and thrown it to the wayside so both of these these guys as they point out in the book can be interpreted by a lot of people as being you know these old cranks who uh, you know, our curmud- curmudgeon. So yeah, like Mez, they, they hold on to this humanist idea, and for even for Gilroy, he's kind of he's went past even the idea of the Black Atlantic as an identifier. He views like humanism through a planetary type of humanism, and it's it's kind of global implications. Whereas Armand is on the other side, right? He's 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 as American as as apple pie. <laughs> I mean, that, the reason they. They're embattled is because they, they they took a step in white institutions, and they're outsiders in, inside, and therefore they're and they're also outsiders of of what they left behind, I guess, quote unquote. Right, right, right. right. Um, so you know, it's it's the classic kind of oh, I don't know, um, you know, like in search for a sense of belonging type of situation. Mm. But what they also what that means then their writing then becomes. Uh, it lives at joint at, at the pivot point, or at the joint, or what they call decollage or whatever. You know, at the, the point of articulation. So they bring two things together that don't necessarily you 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 know someone who 
who knows where they are wouldn't necessarily see or seek out that's where they're where they live where their writing lives um, and what they also both have in common is um, that word common they're, they, they're searching for some kind of common ground right whatever that that might be so they always resisted this was in Stuart Hall's work this is in Paul Gilroy's work they resisted any kind of uh, factionalism especially based on stuff something that at that in that generation at that point was seen strictly through some kind of scientific or biological interpretation of race uh, mm-hmm. that which they deemed spurious and therefore they resisted right especially I mean especially Gilroy and um, you know uh, in, the, in the kind of black British left at the time the mm-hmm. um, institute in Birmingham for cultural studies um, actually sought to completely re- define blackness as a term as a signifier to politicize it in order to you know maybe have it uh, cover more than it uh, what it used to cover under racial and racist terms right uh, and then they both end up in, in their own respect with you know Armin White on one side Paul Gilroy on the other now, obviously we're mentioning Armin White a lot here we haven't really touched on him in, the, in this part of this section of the book but they mm-hmm. both end up um, espousing a kind of humanism um, to each their own. Um, so yeah, that's I guess to really put a pin on it. This is kind of what everything about what, I, what you and I just said points to the um, argument for why you should read these two together. Odd bedfellows, yes, but um, a lot can be uh, taken. You know, a lot of a lot can be learned from engagement. 100%, 100%. Also, what's interesting to get back to another point is um, that I was uh, talking about earlier is that there's this hip-hop ethos, and they probably wouldn't characterize it as that, but would you take something in and put it or or center it or place it outside of its context, right? That's, in, in essence, what a sampler does, right? What a good hip-hop producer or sampler would do, Right? The, the, the bomb squads out there, right? the ones who uh, produced uh, most of Public Enemy's earlier work, produced Ice Cube's first solo album, uh, great samplers, stuff that you can't do now because of you know, the legal ramifications. But a good sampler will take something out of its context, reintroduce it, and then give it a new meaning. And so what Gilroy and Armand aim to do and this is according to uh, McNeil, I'll just kind of like read something real quick, is because they seen black music as the most important popular art forms of the 20th century, they sought to rescue the energy of Motown, the Village Voice, and John Luke uh, Godard from the galleries, the advertising agencies, and the record companies, and used them again to change reality, right? Almost like a, a guerrilla warfighter would do, is take something out of its context or take something that's being used and then mechanize it in a different way against the institution or the body that is aiming their, their ammo at you, yeah. to speak metaphorically, right? So I think that that's what's fascinating about them is they tap into the ethos of, you know, the late 20th century with the advent of all of the, the innovations in telecommunications and in information technology. All of a sudden, all of these desperate black communities around the world can connect and talk with each other and share with each other and I think that 
that's one of the things that Gilroy does that is so important, I think, with the Black Atlantic is to put all of those people into conversation with each other, take them out of their isolation. And I think that historically that makes sense because he says it here. I forget where he says it. I might be saying it in the beginning. I'll get the... It was his critique of, I believe, Raymond Williams. Is that, like, why didn't you get Western and non-Western voices? Why didn't you analyze them together? Why didn't you theorize with them? Because imperialism connects all of them. So when you're looking at the Black Atlantic... It's that experience of being within the English empire that connects everybody, whether you're in America, whether you're in Canada, whether you're in England, whether you're, you're in the Caribbean, Anglo-speaking uh, nation states, right? There's, there's this, this line that connects all of us and we should be in conversation with each other to have a more clear-eyed view of the reality at hand and what we need to do to, to change it and to bring more freedom, more liberation into the fold for our, our minority communities, our communities facing such brutal conditions. So I, I, I do think that that was a, a much needed in, intervention on, on behalf of Gilroy. And I think that those are the, the two things that both him and, and Armand are connected by. They, they hate provincial, provincialism, uh, parochialism, and they want to expand and, and open the borders of thought so that we can be in contact and communication with each other and to allow the genius to spill through or over the borders and the lines that nation states draw for themselves yeah although um on hip-hop uh he uh he's not my go-to either <laughs> there's a point <laughs> in uh, page 35 where he says something that you know you know, I'm I'm tired at this point. I've said this like over and over for, for all my life, where you know hip hop is the only kind of music, only genre of music that gets uh, this distinction, this uh, this division between lyrics and beats, hammered into its very uh, core, and so so it gets judged unfairly, I think, by that division more than any other kind of music. So on thirty on page thirty five, he talks about he also expressed. Concerned that the wit and dexterity of lyricists could be drowned out by computerized, synthesized, and programmed drum technology. So, you know, I think, I believe he's even talking about the message here at this point. I think it's the first time he heard the message. And this, right. was, this has always been my problem with it is rap can only be about the message. You know? Right. It's the only music. I mean, obviously, they are coming from a, a generation of, you know, punk rebellion, I guess. There's a, but even then, there were, I feel like white rock and roll spaces were more allowed to uh, be creative. To be not political. Yeah, to be, to be creative and to try new things, to express new different things. It, it was moving in and out. Whereas uh, right. black music was constantly told, stay on message, stay on message. So that. I think it even screwed us up for for a little while. That's a theoretical drive. That's a theoretical drive, right? To make when you make an art, an art form, only significant when it's political, you close any other possibilities of creative creativity or innovation or new ideas to be sparked. You encircle it, and in that enclosure, there's a certain type of death that happens. So you're absolutely right. It gets a raw deal. It doesn't get read the way that 
it should be and it's not treated in a generous way yeah that, I, but that, so that's one you know one of the things i'm like i, I can't i can't even speak yeah. or think about hip-hop with uh with paul gilroy because for, to him it's right. the only reason it can be taken seriously is if it's serious and right it, it screwed us up i was gonna say it screwed us up as millennials i guess mm-hmm. who fell into that trap as well because uh the only reason the golden age of hip-hop is good is because it was political when that's actually not true it was wow. the golden age because it it had everything you know wow it was all of it it was it was political and not political and right, right, right. you know the uh the irony was not just political irony paul it was also just ironic <laughs> <laughs> yeah like think about it a concert in 1989 or 1990 would feature public enemy kid and play and wa and maybe even what dela and maybe even dela soul in there right you 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 mix it up you mash it up and that kind of diversity that was there from the outset was so rich you could get something spiritual and bohemian from de la soul you could get something very political and you know politically charged by public enemy you could get something fun from kid and play right like it's like when you dismiss that richness things become dead right because that kind of seriousness is what the record companies took and they wrapped everything or they dismissed everything that wasn't gangster rap and just make gangster rap the main thing so you create a, a homogeneous zone and i think those are the things that people like paul gilroy are always fighting against when you give things one narrative so then why would you do that to hip-hop right that's kind of like you're pointing at them for being yeah. generic but you're doing the same thing with your analysis of it i think that armin is a bit better on hip-hop than obviously no wait i mean that that book resistance uh, mm. that's that changed my life right his reading of public enemy his reading of michael jackson his analysis of prince his his breakdown on the spielberg films like that right there his work in the mid to late 80s and well, early to mid 90s yeah i was gonna say it's that time period where he i think he was a little bit more alive to young people um than maybe yeah. paul gilroy was but then it, it's uh, it depends i guess when and where um, today, definitely, in the last 10 years, uh, Armand White, uh, I don't think it would make sense to say he's been alive to young people. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's that's an interesting point you make because, of course, while I was reading this book, something funny comes up where uh, I find you, Mez. I find you and I, th- I didn't think I was going to find you, but that's so interesting. So, so Daniel McNeil and... and uh, Armin White and Mez did a podcast back in like 2014, 2013. I forgot the year, but you're cited in there. And, and <laughs> something interesting happens in that talk between you guys. Would you like to to, to speak about that, Mez? Oh, Armin White. Uh, I thought we could. I thought we'd get into Armin White stuff during the Armin White chapter, but no, no yeah, that right, was 2016 right. pod. 2016. Um, where he mentions that. Uh, on a part about decoloniality that imperialism isn't all too bad if we think about it in a different way you know what's that star wars line from a mm-hmm. certain point of view <laughs> right 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 so yeah but i feel like that's a good disagreement to have with somebody albeit something that really like floored all of us i remember listening to that and saying yo what are you saying armin but at the same time it's those people that we need to be in conversation with more than ever 
I think like we detailed before with the loss of the like back in the day the FCC would would make you if you had an extreme opinion about something you would have to have somebody with the opposite opinion on your show whether it's a radio show uh, a TV show or what have you so you would be watching shows like Geraldo or whatever and you'd have like David Duke up there and then like Minister Farrakhan up there and they'd be talking to each other so they had to be these are people with great 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 disagreements and different ways of seeing the world but they had to be in conversation with each other right I think this was called uh, not the honesty act but it's it's evading me but we talked about it in our episode on music on hip-hop so that that (laughs) we have to have those kind of conversations and and I love the way that you and Daniel handled that situation and I don't still, even remember. <laughs> I mean, you, you still kept the conversation going. You didn't, you uh, know, obviously you questioned it. You said, hey, what do you mean by this? And you, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of understand where he's coming from. I, mean, I think that was, I've, I've told you that Armand White to me is someone who should be read against whoever, whatever administration is in the White House. Mm. So there, I think he should be really divided into an, a, um, a Reagan uh, era a Clinton era, a, a George W. Bush era, and then the Obama, Obama and Trump era should be read together because I think he's. We'll talk about this later in the in the Yarmouth White yeah. stuff, but he did, he suffered from his. He was one of the people who suffered from this whiplash effect from mm-hmm. Obama to Trump that I don't think um, he's re- recovered from. I wonder what McNeil will make of uh, the latter day Armand White, but um to get back to Paul Gilroy though yeah the um the last part of the chapter is uh titled denounced as a heretic right right so when he because I think this is when the split happens between a certain middle black middle class of intellectuals mm-hmm. and a black I say I guess you could call it community of protesters uh, you, know, you know people who have you know protest culture and uh, part, you know, who, who can trace their time in Britain and protesting and being politically active since the Windrush generation, um, who, regardless of what Paul Gilroy or Stuart Hall were up to, were already in co- conversation and in communication with black, you know, the entire black diaspora under the heading of Pan-Africanism, for example, or Garveyism, Afrocentrism, negritude. Um, with people, you know, across the Americas and and in Africa, and as well, uh, as well, and um, it's in the '80s when I think I feel once uh, these uh, groups start to emerge, or organizations like the uh, what is it, the Institute for Race Relations, I believe, the IRR, and I forget what the other one was, but um. There's, there's all of a sudden these organizations that are either government-facing, state-facing, or community and street-facing. And the, if you're a former, um, it attracted a certain ambitious middle class that was, you know, gaining numbers and always wanting funds. And out of that, you know, comes careerism and individualism and so on and so, so forth. I believe at a certain point in McNeil's book, it's... Uh, it's defined as, um, you know, ideological incorporation, right? As opposed to 
um, staying off the grid and staying pure and staying authentic and with the, the public's uh, kind of day-to-day needs in mind. And um, Paul Gilroy runs right into that, right? Um, he speaks about all the local folks, all the people on the ground all the time. But I think the people I've spoken to, he doesn't, they don't know who he is. You know, I mean, <laughs> I've, I've lived in London, I've been to Hackney, I've been to Brixton, I've been east, west, north and south. I've spoken to people who grew up in Birmingham um, and so on and so forth. And most of the people who do know of him and find him, inter- you know, useful are people who were outside of the African, Afro-Caribbean community who mm. have felt that, like they were. And who, who pine for the days of political blackness when people were a little bit more connected, and they they see Paul Gilroy as someone who brought that, who, who worked hard for that. Right. Um, whereas on the other side, Paul Gilroy is really uh, either people don't know him or think of him as one of the earliest uh, kind of generations of sellouts. Um, not necessary that he's ideologically incorporated, but he doesn't speak to issues um or even take part i guess in in, in in this section of the book the critique by colin prescott and by ac vanandan is really what kind of in a nutshell um is what i heard in the last 10 15 years right my mm-hmm. time here speaking to people is um that um you know, he argued, uh, this is Colin Prescott, he argued that Gilroy appropriated the political struggles of others for theorizing that was too enamored with the self-consciously difficult language of the new sociology. Uh, and he did, claimed that there was something very European about a book that did not explicitly recognize non-European thinkers, such as Mao and Amical Cabral. Now you <laughs> juxtapose this to the, his critique of uh, Raymond Williams in them for not you know, looking at having a wider right. scope of things. That's you know, ironic. British Empire. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the kind of internationalism that is not international, or at right. least specifically international. And McNeil and, points that out, right? That, that contradiction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And my whole beef, <laughs> in, a, in a bigger sense, post university, was that there hasn't been a reckoning for why the uh, model has moved from Pan Africanism to diaspora which mm. to me has always been a borrowed term, right. reworked, re- refitted, or fit, sorry, sorry uh, you know, the uh, African, Afro-Caribbean, African-derived, you know, diaspora. So right. it's, it's um, and this is where it becomes really fishy for me is because it is a fact that it's a diaspora, right? You, mm-hmm. can, you can use the term to, to call the, uh, to, or to name the, 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 the subject um, diaspora, you can do that. But to think politics through diaspora, I think to me has uh, kind of been a death knell to a lot of fruitful, political, internationalist kind of um, oriented mm-hmm. um, movements. And that's something that I've, I mourn. You know, I think in this book, there's uh, going to be some talk about mourning. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mourn that. Um one year after Prescott's review, he continues, Sivanandan crystallized such disjunct- disjunctures between the CCCS, uh, that's the Cultural Studies uh, Institute in Birmingham, which is kind of the launching pad for all of this black British um, intellectual work, and the IRR, 
and Institute for Race Relations by accusing the New Times project of Stuart Hall and Martin Jack of retreating from black working class struggles against racism and neocolonialism into culturalism, discourse analysis, deconstruction, and <laughs> this is dope, Thatcherism and drag. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's just, you know, below the belt for the 80s, I guess you could imagine yeah. you're black in the 80s and someone calls you your Thatcherist and drag. That's, um, I think that's an ins- more insulting. But but the other parts about culturalism, discourse analysis, deconstruction, it's, it's masturbatory. It's, uh, it, it is, it goes back to what I thought before is that Paul Gilroy, um, I'll say this one thing and I'll move on being harsh on the man, but, um, he once, Paul Gilroy once said a long time ago, you know, his staying on, uh, the Labour Party, some of the politicians of the Labour Party here, uh, staying on their jack, basically cr- criticizing them and keeping them on their toes. He would say things like he said he once said, um, you know, these labor these politicians they move up and down the country in black limousines, and they see the world through these tinted windows. And he said that at some point we might we might have to think that that's how they see the the world. You know, you start to think that the world is that the real world is actually um, is like that is that is, is seen through as is as is seen through that perspective and i feel paul gilroy sees the world as he saw it through his window from his bedroom oh. as a kid you yeah. know uh, possibilities potentialities things were happening on the street but they were always outside and as soon as he was old enough to go outside he went in and enjoyed it mm-hmm. and, and sought pleasure in it and he never it's i think you said it earlier i don't know if it was off record um off off uh, offline or now having your cake and eat it having your cake and eat it <laughs> you know right. yeah so it's uh wanting to make to mix pleasure and politics is always i think you know it's a non-starter but it definitely started with a certain generation and i think till this day we're in it just um exacerbated with new tech and uh Daniel always talked about the digital age. He, I think, um, always makes a marker about that time period. Yeah. And, and I think it just got exacerbated because everybody's doing culturalism and discourse analysis. And uh, and people can curate their audiences even more now. Um, so, so that inward movement towards the individual yeah. and his uh, kind of intellectual uh, delectation you know the mm-hmm. there's a delectability a titillation that comes from intellectual pursuit <laughs> right that people f- fall into and think that they're doing something meaningful uh mm-hmm. just like i always you know, i always joke like everybody's got a podcast now <laughs> so that's exactly what we're doing now and i think owning yeah. that is a little bit is the next is i think what this generation has on the former one that they understand what they're doing isn't really uh because the 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 bits in the book, I mean, I love the the way he covers all of it. Uh, Daniel does the stuff that he, where he starts to write for emergency and temporary hoarding, and all those mag- radical magazines at the time doing journalism and mixing all that up, and uh, you know that that time uh, how people were politically informed at the same time as they were politi- um, you know edit- politically entertained. I'm sorry, uh, culturally entertained. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is dope. But I think it led to a kind of oversaturation of that way of doing things. To now where technology has made it so that we can all do that. But right. we're not anywhere closer to uh, 
to the things that uh, got us started in the first place, which is Enoch Powell's. Uh, the Enoch Powell's of the world are still around. Right. And um, I'll, I'll I'll stop there. I'll, I'll tell you another thing that I don't like about Paul. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so I I think it's interesting because like to just kind of continue what you were saying earlier like the English public or Londoners or what have you um, obviously McNeil really he situates himself from where he's from uh, in the book you clearly understand he's from the north of England and there's a difference he's from Liverpool who are playing right now actually so oh okay shout out to them <laughs> <laughs> yeah shout out to them he's from Merseyside actually I don't, I don't know if he's from Liverpool Liverpool but Okay, but I guess that's the that's the major city up there. Yeah. So yeah, he situates it. You know, he situates himself. He, he talks about the, the different types of politics of you know Southeast England, London, more conservative, and then he talks about the North and how they were, how the narrative, right? As 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 hooligans and so on and so forth. Uh, the stuff being espoused by the English media back then, especially the the tabloids. So, so that's interesting in a sense because Paul Gilroy was like recently awarded the Holberg Prize, I think in, in 2019. And so what's interesting to me is he's awarded because he's, in a sense, being recognized as one of the preeminent scholars coming out of the UK uh, on race. And so to be awarded like that, for somebody who's been a maverick, somebody who's been an outlier, an outsider feeling like they've been in a sense blacklisted to, to be given those awards now is interesting insofar as I think that Gilroy as as well as Stuart Hall and, and the rest of them they were doing stuff back in the day that was getting them criticized right but I mm-hmm. think I think they were tapping into something that was ingenious in the sense that the working class was disappearing and so how do you talk to these people who are now being seen as human capital as capitalists and waiting, how do you talk to them about the things that they're hoarding, the things that they're buying, the things that they're consuming? And it's where we are in the world right now. So I think that they, they had their hand on the pulse and they understood where global capital was going in a certain extent. But I also appreciate Gilroy and Armand for, you know, being countercultural and really being critical of as as Daniel McNeil would say, middle-class black race hustlers and eggheads who exploited the hard-won victories of the civil rights movement for personal awards, tenure, and prestige. So they both rail against that, and those people who come in just kind of cheaply, pick up a paycheck and pay lip service, and that's all they do, right? They're, they're, They're included in their struggle or their voice or their the narratives that they've been espousing have been co-opted. So these guys, they, 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 they're, they're militant in the sense that they're, they're railing against that. And I can appreciate that, right? So in, in the face of all of that, then to get the Holberg, Holberg Prize, they kind of do the hermeneutical circle and go back to where I started uh, talking from at the beginning of this, this point I was trying to make is, is kind of ironic, right? To then get the Holberg Prize, which is basically seen as like the Nobel Prize for academics, I think it's a prize bestowed upon by the Norwegian Parliament. So it, 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 it's it's interesting. Like, what do you think about that, Bez? Like they, 
they have this uh, radical critique of the the Stanley Crouches and the the Cornell West and all of them. Well, Armin White does. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether Paul Gilroy does. Uh, he probably does. I don't know. I mean, uh, I mean, Crouches. This, like, this is more of an Armin White jazz. corner again, rather than Paul Gilroy. But, but yeah, Armin White definitely had because... a, a time where he, he was going at those guys. Yeah. Yeah, they were part of the village voice. Like, yeah. and I only bring that up because, like, the way that Daniel's writing is quite ingenious. That he's putting these two, these two thinkers together, and their own, their own positionalities on things, right? So if they're both against the grain, they're both outliers. They're both mavericks. They 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 have a set of <laughs> people that they're 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 railing against, right? And I remember reading. Uh, I think we were talking about this earlier, and this is kind of uh, came to came as quite a surprise to you, man. <laughs> I was like, hey, you know, uh, Paul Gilroy and uh, Lewis Gordon. You, you you introduced me to back in the day. They they, they, they had a conversation together about I think it was on Lewis's most recent book on black consciousness. And those are two thinkers that we never thought we would see talk to each other. I remember like Lewis had quite a, a strong critique on Gilroy, the Black Atlantic, and it's either bad it could be bad bad faith and anti racism, either that text or another one. But I believe it was bad faith anti black racism. And so to see those thinkers come together, I don't think it wasn't in a book. I think he was no, it wasn't a talk where. I mean, the, the reason I don't think they go together is because they have a completely different starting point. Right. Gilroy starts in the 15th century, and Gilroy is part of his British cohort um, that sees everything as, as as starting in the 19th century with the. Uh, Race, race science, and eugenics, and and uh, you know um, colonies in Asia and Africa. Mm-hmm. So they they just have completely different la- launching pads. Um, so they end up with different politics. Um, that that's that's con- connected to what I was gonna say also about Giroy's supposed uh, you know anti parochialism. He's trying to. He is about breaking down borders and you know seeking a humanism that goes beyond but he always finds racism lodged within nationalism so he can't um for me i don't know i've never i I don't understand why he thinks of race and nationalism as kind of um kind of embryonically linked you know um, the rise of racism with him is always a kind of white nationalism. Is it his experience as a as a, as a young person in England, Could be. going up against people who are talking about keep England English? Yeah, that's the European immigrant uh, immigrants in Europe's um, mm-hmm. relationship to racism and the, to their own racialization has been through xenophobia and outsiderness and. Uh, um, you can't be German. I mean, I gotta speak for my com- uh, my history. You can't be German because of your skin color. Um, so German and white becomes a thing. Um, I think in America there's uh, an understanding of the history of how whiteness and Americanness come to comes to comes to be, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a more of a there's a different conversation happening. But as he here is, is always dismissed as some relic of the nationalism. So if you would just get rid of nationalism, you can get rid of racism. So 
or at least that's how I always understood it. And um, uh, yeah, the, the, the other part I was going to continue on from before is because of black British cultural studies, I guess, there is this emphasis on diversity. And uh, there's a chapter in a reader by, I think, Les Back, who is a so- sociology professor at Goldsmiths, who um, comes out of you know British kind of sociology of that era as well there's a chapter called the fact of hybridity and that's one of the most offensive moments of my life reading something I remember at the time I mean now I'm over it but um, it's obviously a play on Fanon's chapter the fact of blackness oh. so it's it's, uh, it's almost kind of someone critic crit, crit, critiquing your truth with a, nif- a different kind of truth, right? But one that offers him a way out, but keeps mm-hmm. the first speaker trapped, right? So Fanon's point about the fact of blackness kind of remains lodged somewhere, whereas Les Back, who's a white guy, mm-hmm. can can celebrate hybridity, right? And the dynamism of culture and its irreducibility and its uh, mutability and all this stuff. And to, um, I, I just feel that it enabled that kind of thinking, um, all in the hopes of taking, you know, strides towards a kind of humanism, right? Which, uh, right, right, right. Uh, I don't know. I mean, but that's interesting because it's the the critique of of multicultural snake oilsmen, right? That critique of, of multiculturalism. That's coming out of Canada. That's coming out of England. That's coming out of America. Oh, Gilroy is good on that. I mean, neoliberal yeah. multiculturalism. He's very good at that. Right, he's right, actually right. very good. Um, you know, you should, you should read him for that. The, but that's the interesting part, right? Is to to lose yourself in that. But you can only experience experience that type of multiculturalism or hybridity in these metropoles, right? In the the Londons, the Torontos, the New York Cities, the the, the Los Angeles, the Colognes. Stuttgart's right the Milan's but that's not where all of the world's populations are situated from so I think in a sense that to, to say that this this has global ramifications and that this is the political analysis or cultural analysis that should be taken up upon by by the diaspora that might not be in those types of places because when we talk about diaspora we're not thinking about we're not thinking about a village in in rural Ghana, we're not. We're thinking about Toronto. We're talking. Think about <laughs> London. We're thinking about those types of places. It's, it's so like a video game, right? Like if you any of those cities, you have more coins or <clears throat> you know, like more yeah. points. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like nationalism is all that as a, as as a unifying tool that 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 person in rural Ghana or rural Sierra Leone can have at that moment at that point they don't understand hybridity or being in a well, very cosmopolitan place you see it in uh, critical uh, like well in discourse around race mixture mm-hmm. multiracial versus you know merely monoracial and um toronto being multicultural versus um well like Sierra, like you say sierra leone may, may maybe not being so multicultural or if it is multicultural it's more in ethnicities, right? All of a sudden, yeah. we move towards anthropology to when we refer to the diversity 
in, you know in the global south or something mm-hmm. whereas here we are our multiculturalism is more cult- more multicultural mm-hmm. because we've been i don't know i guess we're more uh, you know better educated about each other and and uh <clears throat> have access to information i guess so right there is there's that um elitism in that sense as well but you mm-hmm. said um Paul Gilroy recently said something where he may have distanced himself from the Black Atlantic. Yeah, I I think he's great for complicating ideas, which is beautiful because that opens up the discussion for more thinking and more dialogue, which is, I think, something that a practice that he's committed to, which I respect. But I think that especially places like London that used to be their own black diaspora used to be more so consisting of people from the Anglo-speaking Caribbean world where now there's a lot more black immigrants from places like Nigeria, Ghana Sierra Leone East Africa Somalia and so the idea of of a black Atlantic now is complicated by the inclusion of those subjects who were also a lot of them not so Atlantic not so Atlantic <laughs> but part of the big British Empire right so you might not call it the black Atlantic but you could call it something else and I think for him where he sees like all of this fantastic cultural production coming from he's saying it's not just black people are not just doing it in the Atlantic we have to have something that's a bit more planetary, a bit more expansive. And so I don't quite know what that means yet. Yeah, but that, that's what happens when you stick to British Empire, which is, mm. I mean, by your own admission, that's very parochial. The empire was a white supremacist empire that spans several centuries and had different nationalities, I guess, whatever, at its uh, at different points, you know, uh, right. b- being more in the, you know, c- central to it. So... <clears throat> if we were to drop the British part and the English speaking part, I remember years years ago, <laughs> this is a white Brazilian woman uh, dismissing Paul Giroy's entire scholarship merely because it didn't apply to the Portuguese, to the Lusophone, you know, world that she came from. Now, at the time, I remember we we resisted that. You know, we went against it because this is how they kind of create this uh you know prophylactic around the entire country of brazil where things are not as they as they are everywhere else you know it's like some something weird about english-speaking world where racism exists or uh, you know anti-blackness or white supremacy somehow you know brazil is uh um immune to that but she did have a point there is a kind of you know Anglo-centered, you know, bent to what Paul Gilroy's uh, Black Atlantic was. And since the Black Atlantic, there's been people who talked about it, Black Pacific, and more recently, Black Mediterranean. uh, I think we started writing this uh, a while back. I don't know if it was on that thing. Uh, I don't know where it was, but I, I, I know... I wrote it down more so than I spoke about it on, on the podcast that this historical relationship that blackness has been brought into with the oceanic or you know bodies of water 
or maybe we talked about it during the, the Wakanda Forever uh, review that right. we did. Right, right, right. Right. So, so somehow we wanna we, we we're drawn to these different bodies of water. That's so interesting because that's where Gilroy is at right now. He still sees it as that as oceanic as. Well, because of the metaphor of the oceanic, I think, I think that's, I think that comes all the way from from Freud. But uh, let's not do that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But but also historically, because of the transatlantic slave trade, and now the Mediterranean becoming like this, uh, you know, new, uh, you know, uh, location of catastrophe, with majority black immigrants being at the, you know, being the victims of it. So, yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, I guess if he's changing his mind about this stuff, it's still speaking in circles. I think, but because it's a stuck in the in the nineteenth century, and b stuck within a um, an actually uh, with an understanding of race that is nationally bound, and that nation just happens to be Britain, which had a big empire, which allowed him to you know critique the the, the Raymond Williamses of the world, but. Um, he never allowed to extend these conversations to, like uh, Prescott says, to the <laughs> Amical Cabral's and Mao. Oh my goodness! I, right, right, by the right. way, I just watched the Marvel movie where they champion socialism. So, <laughs> right, okay. Uh, I, I mean, that's, that's... Gilroy is a socialist too, but <laughs> maybe not Mao is. <laughs> maybe Mao is a little bit too too far from. <laughs> the next Captain America is going to be a socialist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So what's interesting too about that is that um, point that you're making about the the non-inclusion of you know of Mao of Cabral I, I, to to defend Gilroy I think that he's not including figures like that because he sees them as staunch nationalists something that he does not um he does not promote he he I mean I was gonna say in the 80s the split also happens because he insulted the Garveyites the Afrocentric, right, all right. these black bookstores that he, you know, champions. I guess they 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 sound good when he writes about them, and especially when a white audience reads it. I bet it sounds really nice. But mm-hmm. those people, they don't mess with him because uh, he equated the Garveyites with the uh, as uh, with with fascism, called them black fascists. Right. Uh, I think he belittles Malcolm X as well and some other mm-hmm. stuff. So yeah, it's uh. It's an odd one. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it Sorry. is. It is. It is. I think just going to wrap it up now. If you have anything else that you want to include for these these first couple of chapters that we were going on, if there's anything that sticks well, out to you. I, I don't want to be seen as a hater. I do think the idea of roots and roots that he has, I mean, I think Daniel uses it as a title. That was very helpful because the fact of hybridity is a fact. And the fact of diaspora is a fact fact of that diversity like the, the factuality of the facts that they're talking the factness of it i actually mm-hmm. agree with it from an individual perspective you know with a personal history of movement and migration and uh, you know multi-generation and all that yeah so a lot of the stuff he talks about diaspora how it works and what uh, the, the the logic of why they would want to think they, they do rethink po- politics society and culture through prism of diaspora makes sense the, you know logically speaking once you reach a certain age and you have seen several cycles I've always said uh, in my, my personal life 
the immigrant who thinks he he can return to his roots finds out that his you know his journey back is just another it's just that it's another route r o u t e um that was like my experience in 1999 i went back yeah. to a place that was told to be a certain way i went there <laughs> obviously when you, you went you back know, to toronto or no to urchin you know it was yeah but you didn't go back that was your first journey right well no first journey but back in a sense that hey this is where you're from you need to go back you know my parents tell yeah, me but for you that was the first journey that's just what i mean mm-hmm. your first route is is not a return to your roots it's your first route well that that was the complication right i was right. thinking that this is a, a return to my roots and so <laughs> that's where it's like no it's actually not this is i'm an alien here this is this is you know what i'm saying my thoughts my ideas are totally alien and go back to Toronto and that was my journey back to my roots that's what i realized right right yeah but but yeah. then by the time you get back there Toronto has probably changed a little bit not you know yeah. materially necessarily but now you mm-hmm. see Toronto with a different set of eyes right so 100%. like for example my mother's generation they left so that was their first route their first step out mm-hmm. and when they returned after independence back to their what they thought was their roots what they actually arrived at was a country they barely recognized right you know people spoke differently time you know time and space changes and all you had to hold on to was memories that you constantly reconstruct from from your from your time there as a as a younger person and what's happening now is i think this is where i would like to ask daniel why the quotation marks beyond the fact that he f- believes all immigrants are british mm-hmm. and it's the notion of britishness that has to expand not the mm-hmm. it's not on the individual to expand themselves in order mm-hmm. to fit into pre-described idea of britishness right i would like to ask him that because it is useful to think about what the difference is between a first time immigrant and what the first time immigrant can tell their second generation child about yeah. about these things you know because you're a step ahead it's not it's not going to be what you think i i feel for me it was the other way around i could have told my 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 mother that the second time around she goes back it's not really a going back it's more like a going forward you know you're constantly mm-hmm. going forward right yes that is the movement i think it was gilroy oh, I might be getting this wrong it might be peter hudson and i think it was gilroy he 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 had that line that was would always stick with me and i found it like to be really 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 informative we're more routed than rooted we're more routed oh, okay than rooted yeah and that makes me understand mike's that experience i had a bit more just that line by itself and we can understand ourselves as part of the the circulation of people ideas products yeah. right the the that 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 globalization drive and we are in those circuits of movement yeah i mean and that's the that's the entire basis i think of the black atlantic there is no right. so all these com- you know diaspora wars and arguments about ownership of culture which is just all besides the point but but to bring it back to canada just to finish on <laughs> on this point yeah. he talks about canadians who are simultaneously want to be seen as separate from america but are also constantly seek approval from america or attention from america right Mm-hmm. Um do you think that um to think culture through this multi-circuitous circuitous and dynamic 
sense uh, is what is um, is why I, I guess a certain ca- Canadian academic um, group has taken to it, like you know the the Black Atlantic idea. Yeah, you know it allows the Black Canadian to express themselves in a in a way that they couldn't before yeah. because they had to constantly borrow from I guess American ideas of nationalism or national identity or or Black identity. And they were too far removed from, uh, you know, good old, the good old monarchy here. Right, right, right. <laughs> kind of in the middle in that liminal space. Yeah, I think that's absolutely on the ball, right? It's it's feeling provincial, being in a place that's to the north of a global superpower, the number one global superpower in the world after World, world War II. So being beside this monolith to the south of us, trying to get certain types of historical injustices uh, uh, against black people in Canada recognized, whereas the Canadian media and Canadian academic institutions keep reinforcing this idea that black people are just, what, what, what consists of them is just recent arrivals and immigrants, and we know that's a lie, right? And we know that's a lie because we have, like, like if you if you know Toronto... Like right at the center of the city is a station called Dundas Station. And Dundas was a man, who I believe, was a slave owner. And so they're going to be changing that name up soon. Right. So that tells you how close it is at right at the center of the financial district right there is the name of a, a slaveholder. So that that's that kind of disavowal by the Canadian public, the white Canadian public and that admission uh, to that actual fact of hey this man was a slave owner kind of proves the point that black academics have been trying to make for a while and the the idea of the black atlantic enables them to get past that provinciality and that that sense of being second fiddle to the americans and the african-american intellectuals and enables them to have i think it was the best thing that they had so to to launch an analysis and a critique of you know, Canadian multiculturalism, Canadian niceties, and the, the, the patronizing uh, nature of the Canadian media and, and the different academic institutions. I think that, yeah, Daniel McNeil understands Canada and Black Canada uh, better than most Black Canadians. <laughs> and so I, 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 think, I think it was terrific and wonderful, that analysis. Well, it's only getting started, so mm-hmm. I, I think... In chapter four, Gilroy responds to a lot of the shit I just do at him. So, <laughs> right, 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 right. Let's see. I mean, I, I, obviously, he's already done that. It's just in this book, um, the way McNeil mm-hmm. has, uh, Daniel has. Um... By the way, have you noticed you call Armand White Armand? I call Daniel Daniel. <laughs> you call <laughs> Daniel McNeil, and you call Gilroy Gilroy. And when I want to belittle Paul Gilroy, I call him Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so we got to get this right. So, um, you know, well, I, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just choking that. It's, just, uh, it's not important. <laughs> so how does Daniel want to be? Daniel McNeil want to be re- referred to? How well, does, I wouldn't know. We'd have so, to ask him. Yeah, we got. Is it? Is it Pro- Professor McNeil? Professor Daniel McNeil? Professor Paul Gilroy? You know, I would be respectful. Yeah, that's the, that's the Black Mediterranean in you. Because you you you're new diaspora, you know. Exactly. You're, you're, I come with the you're coming and 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 complicating the complication. <laughs> exactly. More complex. Coming with my my Habasha 
sensibilities and uh, the humility of, you know, <laughs> the the your man. Yeah, but yeah, uh, this was nice. And looking forward to go to Detroit next and uh, look into the guy we both probably spend more time talking about. We could there's more to talk about. For sure. I if I, I think if it wasn't for Daniel, I'd be the considered the prime Armand whitest. <laughs> <laughs> I just kind of fell out of it over the last, I mean, uh, since five, six years ago, I kind of, it's like, oh man, come on now, Armand, I I can't, I can't, I can't be seen around you anymore, <laughs> you know? Yeah, those, that Resistance Years book was just so... Well, that's 84 to 94, so that's, yeah, that's you know, good old Marx's days. <laughs> <laughs> that, that stuff, Viva I still Revolution. read all his, I still read most of his reviews, most of his, his writing. He has he has a lot of insight still, so you can disagree with somebody and, and still still read them. I would say his best years were the uh, what they call it the New York Press days from the first decade of this century. So in oh, my right. in my categorization, the Bush years, that's the best right. stuff I've read because that's uh, that's really reading against the grain or, or writing mm-hmm. against the grain in this case. Yeah, like his article on Jay-Z and, and Diddy uh, regenerating or degenerating hip-hop for me was just perfect. The way he read Jay-Z's 99 Problems video and Diddy's, P. Diddy's um, Raisin in the Sun Broadway play. I thought I thought that was marvelous the way he brought those two things together and talked about the direction hip-hop could go and to really do an analysis on its current day renderings and the kind of the, 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 the direction it was going. He, he, he offered a, an awesome analysis there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's, like I say, looking forward to Detroit techno soul and uh, libertarianism. Let's go. Yeah. Motown. Here we come. All right. So with that, <laughs> what uh thank you for giving us a listen. Um, make sure to, to share, like, and subscribe to this and shoot us an email at no GPS podcast at gmail.com hope you did mr daniel mcneil justice and we're going to keep going at it so peace and harmony to you all peace and harmony mez peace and harmony Like Jordan can't control it. Janet Jackson free zoning. Vulture like Leah Cohen. Bap uh, bap and I hit a bit of rhythm of the kick. Hit a bit of rhythm of the fist. Hit a bit of rhythm of the Bruce Lee. Who me? Move like a Fuji. Back in a Uzi. Glow up, blow up like Gucci. Super side for the clouds like QB. You in a game for the fame. What a shame for the fame like David Bowie. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I be the man. Y'all be the rant. Stalking the fan on YouTube. Damn. Hopping the lamb with the top of my head with the prince and Michael Jackson bad. What Wesley had. The new Jack. I'm holding back, my soul on that People got some that try to keep me down But the sister where you tell me something Yeah, they follow when I try to see me drown But the sister where you tell me something